Some years ago, a couple, uh, Christopher, Mr. and Mrs. Christopher Snyder had a beautiful June wedding. The problem started when the wedding was over when they couldn't decide where they should go to celebrate. Uh, seeing as how they had been drinking since early afternoon, uh, the bride got mad and gashed her hu- head, husband's head open with her wedding ring. The police were eventually called because someone in the bar thought the groom had been stabbed. When the bride had met the police, she was a little belligerent and she was arrested for disorderly conduct. They later found the groom wandering along a nearby street in search of a hospital. They took him to see his wife in jail. Shortly after being released, the lovebirds began arguing again and he hit her in the face. He was arrested this time for domestic battery and since she started kicking the police officers for interrupting their honeymoon... She was arrested a second time for disorderly conduct. They spent their wedding night in separate cells and were released the next morning. That's a great way to start a wedding or a life together in in marriage, isn't it? Uh, But, you know, it's, uh, it's how we deal with conflict that I think really determines the health. Uh, it determines the, the satisfaction. It it determines the blessedness of our family relationships, not just marriage, but your relationships with your siblings, with your children, with your parents. Uh, You know that a lot, a lot of violent crime is actually committed by folks who know each other. I actually looked at that this week, a a U.S. uh, government report from 2004. I found that 54% of uh, violent crime was committed against non-strangers. That is between uh, somebody that a person had a relationship with. 77% of the murders were committed uh, by a non-stranger. 70% of the sexual assaults. All that to say uh, that oftentimes when folks come into conflict with, each other, with one another, uh, they express it in violent ways. Now, maybe none of you here ever have that tendency. And maybe you never will do anything like that. I hope not. I sincerely hope not. But I do know this, you will have conflict with those people that you live with, those people who you are connected with, those people that you have relationships with, and you have a choice to deal with those conflicts in a destructive way. Probably the the nth degree is this kind of violence that I'm talking about, but, but just as damaging are the emotional games that we play, just as damaging are the snide insults, the way that we cut one another down and we deal with each other out of our frustration, we deal with each other out of this conflict in a way that's hurtful. Instead, today I want us to look at God's word as we continue our series on home life and and figure out how we can have constructive conflict. I really believe uh, some of the things I'm saying today are some of the best practical, applicational truth I can ever give you. Because if you have healthy relationships where you effectively resolve your conflicts, uh, then you're going to be a long way down the road to having the kind of life that God intends for us. God intends for us just as he started out with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He intends for us uh, to be able to live in harmony. He intends for us to be able to live in serenity, in peace. That's why the Bible talks so much about how God wants to give us peace. And he wants, I believe, his ideal is for us to have peace in our relationships with those in our family, peace with those in our church, peace with those 
in our neighborhoods, peace with those in our workplace. So let's look together at these verses, and I'm going to give you four conflict resolution skills, and then later, a little later, two action steps uh, to deal with that, okay? Four conflict resolution skills. The first is this, be honest, be honest. Now, you'll notice today, uh, at least in my outline, I have a period after each of these uh, because sometimes I think we, we start uh, rationalizing, we, we start uh, thinking about how, yeah, this, this be honest is a command, but, but it's, not, it's not something we need to do all the time. Uh, you know, if, if the circumstances uh, indicate that for us to be dishonest would be hurtful, then, then we kind of rationalize away, well, we can just fudge the truth a little bit. We, we can have a, a little bit of white lie. That's not what this verse says, uh, Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. That word in Greek, put off, is discard, totally get, a, get rid of. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. That is, in this teaching, and it's a command, in this teaching, there's never a place for dishonesty. And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And so he's talking about the church relationships that you have. But certainly, I think we can apply this teaching, we can apply this command to all of our relationships, all of our life. You know, in 1991, a book came out by James Patterson. James Patterson, you may know, is a, a popular novelist, but he wrote a book It was based in nonfiction. It actually did a survey, uh, an anonymous survey of uh, quite a cross-section of Americana, of Americans. And he found this. The book's called The Day America Told the Truth. In that book, he came up with these statistics. 91% of Americans lie routinely about matters they consider trivial. One out of three lie about important matters. 86% lie on a regular basis to their parents. 75% 75% lie to their friends. Seven out of ten married people lie to their spouses. I know it, it's not easy to tell the truth, especially when it might hurt someone, but if we value good relationships and if we take seriously what God says here and in other places, it's essential to develop this first skill in conflict resolution. It's essential to be able to tell the truth, to be honest. It's hard to have a healthy relationship if truth and honesty are not valued. What this means is you need to choose sometimes to do what's not easy, but, but what's always right, to be honest, to be able to, to speak the truth in the words that you say. One of my favorite verses is in Ephesians 4.15, just a few verses before verse 25 that we're looking at. It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, We will in all things grow up into him who is the head. Now, these statistics I gave you were from 1991, almost uh, 30 years ago. Well, 25 years ago, going on 30 years ago. Uh, Now I wonder if those those statistics would be even more different. What it means to me is chances are in this room uh, we have uh, some folks who maybe struggle with with telling the truth. I, I say to you. It is difficult, but instead, speaking the truth in love, trying to speak the truth in love, I think will have a 
uh, ultimately, it may be painful to begin with, but ultimately have a positive effect on your relationships. Now, Beth and I disagree in one aspect of this, not about whether we should tell the truth or not, uh, but we disagree in one aspect, uh, and maybe y'all can relate to this. Uh, she thinks telling the truth means you say everything that you know. It, it, you, you, I think... I grew up in a house where my dad always he drilled into me. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. Any, any of y'all heard that before? Let me tell you where that comes from. I, I, you know, my dad gets mad at me now. He, you know, he heard my sermon. He listens to my sermons after the fact. He heard my sermon a few weeks ago when I was talking about how much I hate hominy and stewed tomatoes and spam. That was not new to him. I've told him that before. But he always says, why didn't you tell me that? When you were growing up, we wouldn't have fixed it. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm too like, you always said, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. So if he had asked me, do I like it? I would have said no. But he didn't ask, so I didn't tell him. I didn't volunteer it. See, honesty to me is whatever you say is truth, but you don't volunteer things that you, you know, maybe won't be well received, right? I have vivid memories of going to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, soon to be two baseball stadiums to go for the Atlanta Braves, and going to uh, the games, we'd always see a couple things, walking it from the parking lot to the gate. We'd see, there was always a guy out there that had like 10 watches up his sleeve, right? And he'd say, hey, you want this watch? I got it. It's a real good deal. It's great quality. And I'm wondering why he's got 10 watches up his sleeve. Well, I think those probably weren't his watches to start with to sell, but he was going to give me a good deal. Uh, second thing, they would have always a vendor that have, have these bags, these plastic uh, lunch bag, or excuse me, paper lunch bags, and and they'd be kind of moist looking, and then kind of grubby looking, and and he would be selling boiled peanuts. Y'all know what boiled peanuts are? They're basically peanuts that have had the life sucked out of them. In a bunch of salt water, right? And you, you, crack, you don't crack these things. You kind of, because they're all, all soggy. And you kind of, you know, squeeze them open. And out, out comes this little slimy thing. It, it kind of looks like a peanut. Tastes like pure salt. And that's supposed to be it. I mean, people would pay money for this down south. My dad always, he loved them. He'd buy some boiled peanuts. Here, you want some? That lasted, and that was a great illustration of, of why I shouldn't say whatever came to mind. I told him what I thought. He wasn't happy with my response. So I'm saying to you, I think it's completely acceptable, I, I think, to not say everything that you think, but I am completely telling you, I don't think you need to say anything that is untrue. You need to avoid going there. So I'm giving you this as a kind of a practical application. If you're tempted to say things that are untrue, then I would just, uh, in a sense, you don't have to say these words exactly, take the fifth, uh, I would avoid commenting. And that may not be a happy solution, but it's better, I believe, than being dishonest. And I also tend to believe that we need to really 
think about the words that we say to one another. We need to really think about what we and how we say things, which is what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. The second resolution skill uh, I want to give to you is be peace-seeking. Be peace-seeking. <clears throat> that is, what is your goal in this conflict? Is it to get your way? Is it to get your way no matter what the cost? Is it uh, that you approach conflict as a, a zero-sum game? There has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. I, I don't think that's the way we should approach it. Now, what happens when people make us angry? When we, go, we get into a situation where we disagree with somebody, often anger flares up. And that's what Paul talks about here in his letter to the Ephesian Christians a great deal. Verses 26 and 27 say, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That is, as you have that anger flare up, and it's going to happen to all of us. It's a human emotion God makes us with. How do you deal with it? In your anger, do not sin. That actually comes from Psalm 4.4, which the full verse says this. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. You probably were taught when you get angry, before you say anything, you count to ten. You know, uh, I, I've always thought what I, what I just shared with you, that, that we need to not say things that we can, uh, we can hold in. And I, I will say to you this, you are going to flare up with anger, I think, you need to take some time to let that cool down in your relationships. But I'm also telling you not to repress it. I'm telling you not to bury it and let it eat away at you. Take some time to, to search your hearts and be silent, as Psalm 4.4 says. Take some time and hopefully you, you have enough time where you don't let the sun go down your anger. What that's saying is, uh, I mean, you could take it literally, and I know some folks that do, uh, but I, what I, I really think it's not so much a 24-hour period or a 12-hour period. I think it's talking about don't allow that anger uh, to, to turn into corrosion. Don't allow that anger to turn into perversion. Let me tell you a couple ways practically I do that in my own personal relationships. Um, I typically sometimes will write a letter to someone. Uh, if something they've done has hurt me or, or frustrated me, uh, if after time and praying about it, uh, I don't, I don't uh, gradually let the, that anger doesn't dissipate. It's still that, that concern, the, the need to, I think, give constructive uh, input on what I think is a, the problem and the conflict. Uh, then I'll write a letter to folks and uh, uh, to express myself without uh, sometimes... Uh, the folks closest to us, they know how to push our buttons, right? And, and we end up having a, a conversation that becomes circular or escalates. Uh, that's not the thing you want to do. But you, you don't want to do that out of anger. Uh, because he's exactly right here. If you both are either spew that anger right away when it's hot and fresh, or you let it gradually eat at you, and, and become this, this block in your spirit, this block between you and that person. Either way, it gives the devil a foothold, as he says here. It, it ends up bringing 
a, a, a bed, a, be in a bed of negativity, right? And that's not what we want. That's not what we, we see. Instead, I say, instead of, of staying angry or blowing up in anger, instead of that, seek peace. Seek peace. Seek to make peace. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. God's desire is we look, we seek to make peace. That means in conflict, we understand that as long as we try to make a winner and loser, and ultimately, we both are going to lose. When I do premarital counseling, with couples to be married, I always say to them, if one of you always has to win and one of you always has to lose, then you, you together, the we is going to lose. And I would say that to you. If in your relationship with your child, there's conflict and there has to be a winner and loser, then the relationship's going to suffer. If, it, if in your relationship with your parent or your brother or your sister, somebody's got to win or lose, I think both of you are going to lose. Instead, allow God's spirit, allow God's uh, peace to work in you. It's amazing how, as I've applied this principle through the years, how I can be angry, I can be frustrated with somebody. And as I seek the will of God, as I pray about it, as I, I, I seek to see how and where we can work forward, how he dissipates that anger, how he takes away that, and, and often leaves me with this, that, that I as a Christian have a choice to choose the, the better way. I have a, a choice to choose the way of love and forgiveness, or I have the way, and I have the right to choose the way of bitterness and vengefulness. I have the right to, to choose to be grudge, begrudging, but that's not the way that God wants me or you to resolve our conflict. The third conflict resolution skill I see in this passage is to be kind. Is to be kind. Verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. There again is that teaching about if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I think that's an expression he returns to in a few verses. The first part of verse 32 says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. The way you speak is a tremendous reflection of your attitude. And if you want to be kind and compassionate to others, it's not just an action. It's also in the way that you speak. It's the way that you interact verbally. Be kind. In a 20-year study of 2,000 married couples, researchers have discovered one important predictive factor in determining which couples will stay married for the long haul. This is from 1994. In their research, they found that if you had a 5-to-1 positive-to-negative comment ratio, you're much more likely to stay together, much more likely to have a healthy marriage. Positive interactions like complimenting, smiling, and touching must outnumber negative comments like sarcasm 
or put-downs by a ratio of five to one. Let me give you two practical ways to practice this third skill. Don't use words like always or never. In your marriage, as you interact with your kids, as you interact with all the people around you. Don't use words like always or never. You never take out the garbage or you always forget to do this. Those things are probably not true, but I guarantee you they're not kind. We can use our words, our tone, and we can use to, to comment and to be positive or negative. It helps you to remember that God made you different on purpose from that other person. God has a sense of humor. He brings together opposites in marriage. And then we have children that have some of those opposite qualities. It's important for us to embrace and to think of those things as positives instead of negatives. Yes, that difference can lead to aggravation, but it also can lead to appreciation. People aren't always wrong if they're different from you. They're just different. And you want to be able to, to affirm that difference, not make them feel strange or out of place. The fourth resolution skill I talked a lot about in the fall. I'm not going to spend a lot on it here, but be forgiving. Be forgiving. Healthy families always practice forgiveness regularly. The second part of verse 32 says, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. As I said often back in that series in the fall, God forgave you all of your sin against him. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember that. It's hard for us to remember how ungodly we have been. But God saw fit to choose to look past, to choose to move on from that. And if we respond in faith, if we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, as we're baptized into him, God provides forgiveness for that sin. And also, we should live with others in that way. People do things you don't expect, things you don't understand, even in your own family. And you have a choice uh, to, to hold on to that, to be bitter about it, or you have a choice to let it go, to be forgiving. Let me end with two action steps. The first is this, and this might seem odd, but I, I very much think as I've done years of counseling with folks, as I've interacted with lots of people, I think we need to seek financial fitness. I think financial matters are often the underlying root of a lot of conflict. It's not always stated, but I think the ability to manage, to be open and honest, to be transparent about money. I mean, money does weird things to people. I mean, it, it, there, there are ways of interacting with it and dealing with it. Uh, it oftentimes is a place that, that's closed off, a place that, that we don't talk about. You know, my brother, he, he always used to say to him when we were growing up, hey, uh, let's go do this. You got some money? He'd always say, enough. How much money you got? Enough. Uh, it, it, just an illustration of what I'm talking about. Seeking financial fitness personally, seeking financial fitness as a couple or as a family can head off a lot of conflict. It can head off a lot of understanding or misunderstanding about finances. Seek financial fitness, I think, is something you want to put on the radar as both a preventative maintenance and 
uh, to, to keep and maybe better your communication in the present. And then I would ask you to, to seek serenity. Seek is a strong word, which means to search vigorously. Seek, as you want to seek peace, you also uh, want to think about uh, this place of, of serenity. Ronald Niebuhr uh, was a philosopher, a minister uh, in the early part of the last century. Uh, he died in 1971, but very influential. In fact, President Barack Obama says he's one of the most important influences to him philosophically. Uh, but so does Martin Luther King. He was a great influence on, on John McCain as well. So it, not just one political part of the spectrum, uh, but he... he came up with a lot of things. Uh, he moved greatly in his, his philosophy through the decades of his work. He taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York for many years. But he, maybe you didn't know this, was, is credited as being the author uh, of the Serenity Prayer. You probably have heard of this. You probably heard the first three lines of it. It's used in the 12-step program for AA. Uh, you've seen it on probably all kinds of knickknacks before. But I want to I read the whole prayer to you. And I, I, was, I actually thought about running this off on paper and giving it to all of you today. Uh, but I thought maybe not everybody would want it. And also, you can, on the internet, look it up. And, and you can look up the whole prayer. But this is a great prayer uh, for you. If, you. if you're living in a place where there's a, a kind of a conflict eating away at a relationship, uh, it reads like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And here's the rest of it. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right, if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. That adds a whole different layer to it. And I want to leave you with this thought. Serenity is your choice. Serenity has to be your choice. So oftentimes, we think if only those people around us would do this, then we could be at peace. But that's not true. With God's help, as you grow spiritually, you can grow to this understanding that, that there are some things you can change. And God will give you the ability and the courage to do that. There are some things you can't change because that other person has to, to change. So you just let that go. And with God's help, you have the wisdom to know the difference. One day at a time with his help. And then I'm confident if we can grow in that, in these resolution skills, we grow in this this uh, spiritual development I'm talking about, our relationships are going to be better. Let's practice constructive conflict. Uh, that's my request. Fathers, we think about these things today. I pray that uh, 
we've been thinking about how we can apply this, but even more, maybe you're showing us how we need to change for future relationships as well. Father, where there are divisions now, where there is pain, I pray for you to, to bring healing. I pray for you to bring reconciliation. Where there is distance, I pray that you'd uh, bring uh, growth coming together. Father, help us to, to learn these truths and put them into practice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.